0: Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Hard to believe today ends the first official week of 2021. Where did the time go? What I do know is that the time went by fast, but as I've said many times before, the older we get, the faster time in general moves. However, that doesn't stop me from uh, enjoying what I do most. Of course, there are many things I enjoy doing, but one of them just so happens to be uh, on-the-air podcasting and sharing what I know and what I enjoy most about history with you all, my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. So here we are um, discussing Wedding of the Waters, the Erie Canal and the Making of a Great Nation, uh, Peter L. Bernstein's um, book. Um, But for this episode, we're going to be closing out on part one. Of the book being about the visionaries, and I'm sure some of you all are wondering, well, how many more visionaries are there to talk about? Well, I know for one, there was more than just one visionary behind an erie behind instituting not just the Erie canal but uh canals in general. Now, for this podcast session to end the visionaries, we're going to be talking about one man in particular. He is somebody that really can't be forgotten in general. Uh, what I do know is that it, later on down the road, he would be considered um, the first in the hearts of his fellow countrymen. So, before we get to that answer, we'll lead off with our uh, first bonus question for this uh, podcast episode, and it's going to be the following. For those of you um, who, were, who have been listening with me on this uh, book, The Erie Canal, I did mention a great deal in uh, the previous um, episode about a fellow named Cadwallader-Colden who would be the first to explore uh, New York State's Mohawk Valley region. Well, our first bonus question will lead off with Mr. Cadwallader-Colden, so here we go. Let's fasten our seatbelts. Despite Cadwallader-Colden's thorough surveying of New York State's Mohawk Valley route to the west, would New York in general continue debating about the canal process itself? Well, the answer is yes, especially more so in the years after the American Revolutionary War ended, when, where between 1784 and 1817, or let alone, I should say, between 1784 and 1817, being about a 33-year span, the state saw endless commissions discuss proposals to multiple surveying expeditions and studies taking place. I think this should be a good reminder, based off of what I shared uh, from the introduction um, a few um, episodes back, where from 1792 to 1817, um, for that 25-year duration period, that um, all that was done was uh, surveys and surveying an expedition. Well, yes, studies would have gone on, but in the early onset, starting around 1784, um, that's when um, when the um, discussion of proposals via means of uh, commissions uh, first began. So, you know, it's one thing to engage in proposals. It's another thing to engage in expeditions and studies. And while all of that is great, you do have to wonder over time, is all of this just pure talk and no action? You know, oftentimes we see that in today's modern day government where people where politicians promise something, and then sometimes, or more often, those promises don't go through. So it's easy to talk up a, a good talk on something. It's another the bigger question is, can you follow through with it? It's like that old saying, if you make a promise, you gotta keep it. But then again, uh, things do change, and sometimes they don't always change for the better. So our other um, bonus question, following our leadoff one, is the following. Would anyone from outside of New York State, from within the new United States, become the first to lead the way in overseeing a waterway, or a canal route linking east to west? And when I say east to west, I'm not talking about uh, from the Atlantic coast to the Pacific coast. Really, what what this is is from the east coast, meaning the 13 states uh, that are surrounded by the Atlantic Ocean stretching from uh, Massachusetts to Georgia. Would there be an east-west route linking the states on the atlantic coast up into what we now know as the ohio valley and into uh, the great lakes region so yes once again would anyone from outside of new york state be the first to lead the way in overseeing an actual waterway canal that could link that would link east to west yes well who is this individual it just so happens to be a prominent well-to-do virginian named george washington you know, I mentioned something earlier about a, a, a fellow who would one day become um, the first in the hearts of his uh, fellow countrymen. Well, what do you know? It just so happens to be George Washington. You know, when we think of George Washington, we often think of him as the uh, the head commander of the Continental Army. And why, why yes, that is uh, absolutely true. We must also remember that George Washington is a very very well-to-do landowner after all he did marry um, a fellow lady who was a widow she was uh, martha dandridge custis he married her back in 1759 and by doing so he had married the wealthiest woman in virginia martha dandridge's um, first husband was daniel park custis And uh, when he died, he left Martha a vast amount of, um, not just money, but land fortune. Well, Martha's not a stranger to money. Uh, After all, her father was a very uh, prominent um, individual in the uh, Virginia House of Burgesses, or what would one day, after separation from England, would be called the um, House of Delegates. But... In colonial times, before separation from England, it was known as the House of Burgesses, and Martha um, Dandridge, um, Custis' father, his name was John Dandridge, who was a very well-to-do Virginian. As a matter of fact, where Martha Washington hails from is uh, New Kent County, which is not far from where I live, and whenever my wife and I uh, go Route 60, which is what we always do for Williamsburg, the entrance to New Kent County says the home of the First Lady. And I'm not here to get ahead of the game, but... Our nation's first lady was none other than Mrs. Martha Washington. So, back to the primary focal point of our uh, discussion here. Yes, George Washington owns vast amounts of land, but I think the bigger answer to that um, question can be summed up as the following. He owns a vast amount of land in large part because of having married Martha. He already had acquired land, but by marrying Martha his status pretty much doubles, or let alone triples. Whatever he owns land-wise on his end, by, along with marrying Martha's, all that land adds up to greater value. So in order to have owned a vast amount of land, wouldn't you say that it would, be, that it would make practical sense for Washington himself to have land knowledge? Absolutely. How so? Surveying. George Washington was known for his land surveying expertise. And we must remember this too, folks. If if someone lived, if a child made it past the age of 10, they really were considered to be technically an adult because most children did not make it past the age of 10. And another um, relevant uh, piece of information I ought to point out is this. Uh, some years back when my wife and I did visit Williamsburg one time, we learned that uh, children before they reached the age of 10 did not attend church but once they reached the age of 10 then they started attending church more and the reason for that was because for one if a child made it to the age of 10 yes they were considered to be adult status but two it was commonly believed that a child had um had established or developed a a strong a strong um, resistance to any uh, diseases that were common for the time. So, in other words, families were afraid to bring their children into church in fear that perhaps their children, if they were not immune to the diseases of the time, could infect older members of the congregation. So, by the time George Washington reaches the age of 16, which would be in the year 1748, he has already become a skilled surveyor. He started surveying just before that age of 16, but technically by the time he is officially 16, he has become a a very, very solid, skilled uh, surveyor. And what do you know, in the year 1748, Washington gets invited to participate in a survey, and we're not talking about those surveys you receive in the mail, or someone calling up by phone and saying, we'd like to um, have you answer a couple of questions. No, that's not the kind of survey I'm getting at here, folks. The type of survey that Washington's going to be participating, participating in is one that is a survey, or let alone a study, of um, a vast swath of terrain throughout Virginia that's going to be comprised of 5 million acres. That's a lot of land. As a matter of fact, some of that land, a good chunk of that land um, will go into what we now know as present-day West Virginia, perhaps present-day West Western Pennsylvania, and perhaps uh, part of Ohio. But whom has Washington um, been appointed to? I'll give you a hint. The gentleman's name is Thomas, but this is no ordinary individual. This man this man's title of nobility is Lord Fairfax. There is a county in Virginia called Fairfax County. It's named after the Fairfax family from England. And it just so happens to be that Fairfax County is the largest county in Virginia. Well, what an honor this must have been for George Washington to know that he was going to be surveying he was going to be part of a big survey expedition where five million acres were at stake. Now one thing I can point out too is this that um, of unique um, history there is a place in Virginia uh, known as Natural Bridge which is in um, the southern end of the Shenandoah Valley um, it's just uh, on the outskirts of Lexington, uh, which is home to Washington and Lee University, where uh, one of my brother-in-laws attended college. But um, was- uh, but Natural Bridge um, has been around for a long time. It's it was, it's considered to be a natural wonder onto itself. If any of you all go, I would strongly recommend visiting. Um, it's it's very well worth the time and energy to um, to tour but what's what makes natural bridge very unique if i had to pick two reasons why is for one you can actually see george washington's initials carved at natural bridge Uh, not long ago when my wife and i went um, uh, one of the uh, tour guides there or just someone on um, who happened to be at the right place at the right time working at the uh, site said if you look very carefully across and just look a little ways up you'll see um, the initials G and W. Well, what do you know? George Washington carved his initials, and after 270 some years, they're still there. The other thing I find interesting about Natural Bridge is that in 1770, a fellow by the name of Thomas Jefferson bought Natural Bridge from King George III do you want to know how much money Jefferson um, purchased Natural Bridge from King George III for twenty shillings? I'm sure many of you all are wondering what, how much, what is the equivalent of twenty shillings in say modern day American dollars? I found out the, uh, the answer. It'll probably knock many of you all socks off. It's the equivalent of five dollars, but in seventeen seventy. Twenty shillings is a lot of money. Very few people had that kind of money to actually spend on anything that was considered extravagant. But it is fair to say that Thomas Jefferson himself um, made a very, very um, smart investment in purchasing Natural Bridge from King George III. I mean, little did he know, six years later, he would be writing a document signed by not only just himself, but by 55 other men whom would be signing their lives away in declaring separation from England. So it's probably fair to say that Jefferson um, made a good investment before before the tide uh, turned in favor of us um, just a few short years away. So I'm sure many of you are wondering if George Washington is a surveyor, Is it fair to say that he has a real passion for real estate? Yes, he does. And his passion for real estate um, begins even before any kind of notion would have been um, tinkered with in terms of separation from England. So by the time he has reached age 18, Washington himself has amassed 5,000 acres in Virginia, consisting of 11 large properties ranging from Mount Vernon to the northwest confines of the Potomac River Valley. Mount Vernon alone added 8,000 acres. Washington also owned multiple properties in the Ohio River Valley of Pennsylvania, which we now know as present-day Pittsburgh, totaling 33,000 acres, which he received in 1770 which not only is the same year that Thomas Jefferson bought Natural Bridge from King George III, 1770 was also that same year that the um, infamous Boston Massacre took place. But Washington receives the 33,000 acres from the British as a gift for his service during the French and Indian War. So we, we have to remember, even in 1770, folks, George Washington is still very loyal to the crown, but then again, most Virginians are. What is going on in Massachusetts is one thing, but we must remember, especially with regards to the Boston Massacre, and um, but we must remember that even in 1770, most Virginians are very, very skeptical about wanting to engage in any kind of separation from England. It will happen, but it will take time. But any kind of separation from England just doesn't happen overnight, especially in Virginia. How so? Well, for starters, Virginia is the largest of the 13 colonies. And secondly, if any of the other 13 colonies wanted to separate from England, well, what would colonies up north like New Hampshire and Massachusetts, or let alone a colony... Um, as far south as, say, South Carolina, would need to uh, consider. They've got to go through Virginia. Virginia not only has a lot to gain, but a lot to lose. And remember, folks, I've said it a million times before, and I could say it a million times more, given that Virginia is the largest of the 13 colonies, her land territories, or let alone land holdings, go as far west as present-day Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, Wisconsin, to Kentucky and Tennessee. So for George Washington to have all of this land, it is a big deal. To him, it could also be a matter of national security, a matter of personal security. Because think about it, he would like to be able to invest in, um, in, few, in some kind of outside land settlements um, that perhaps he might like to build a home along, say, along the Ohio River. And um, for those of you um, who want to know exactly where the Ohio River is, it's not confined to just Ohio, but it stretches into uh, western Pennsylvania. As a matter of fact, where Pittsburgh is, and again, not to get off track here, but just a little side history, the Pittsburgh Steelers, whom my wife and I are avid uh, football fans of, that's our favorite professional football team, their stadium is now called Heinz Field. But before that, from 1970 to 2000, for thirty years they played at a stadium called Three Rivers. Here's a hint, folks. There are three rivers that um merge into that find that or make up a confluence. That is a confluence of three rivers that enter th- into Pittsburgh: the Ohio, the Allegheny, and the Monongahela. So that's why you have Three Rivers Stadium. Well, what was then Three River Stadium. And so all three of those rivers are very essential to the, not only to just the Ohio Valley but to Western Pennsylvania. You know, I should also point out here that um, many people have often wondered how Mount Vernon got its name. I'm sure most people are probably always have always been uh, under the assumption that, Was- that George Washington himself built Mount Vernon from scratch. Well, I can um, admit right here that about uh, 12 or 13 years ago, uh, when my wife and I took a day trip to Mount Vernon, we learned something that, uh, that we didn't expect, and it was good. We learned that uh, George, one of George Washington's half-brothers, by, whose name was Lawrence, was the one that built Mount Vernon from bottom to top. George, young George Washington lived in Mount Vernon And part of his agreement was that he would stay at Mount Vernon as long as his half-brother was the head owner of the estate. But unfortunately, in 1752, his half-brother Lawrence died. He wasn't that old. I don't think he even made it to the age of 40. But Lawrence's wife was still alive, and she became the head owner. But by the time she dies, shortly after... George Washington inherits Mount Vernon, and he's not even 30 years old just yet. But Mount Vernon itself was named after a fella for whom George Washington's half-brother, Lawrence, served under in England. His name was Sir Edward Vernon. So in case you all were wondering how Mount Vernon got its name, it was after um, Sir Edward Vernon, whom George's half-brother, Lawrence, not only served under uh, when, um, when uh, studying in England but whom he had a great deal of uh, respect for. Now, here's a a bonus question we'll uh, take into consideration here. Just before and by around 1775, did George Washington constantly worry about America's future regarding westward movement past the Appalachian Mountains? Yes. He became convinced that people who moved westward had potential to form multiple separate nations to where America as one nation could no longer exist. This is, um, this is where we get into this notion of that old saying, old money and new money don't mix together. They don't, they don't go hand in hand. Well, take Virginia, for example. Where is all the old money in Virginia? During this time, before, especially before um, the shot, the first shots are fired around the world in Lexington and Concord, Massachusetts, in 1775. All the old money in Virginia lies in Tidewater, especially um, knowing that the Randolphs and the uh, the Carters, the Lees, uh, the Custises. um, Then you've got the Byrds, just a handful, just to name a few elite Virginia families. All that old money is concentrated in the Tidewater area. If people are moving westward, that's one thing, but do they share the same vision and ideals that those who have old money from the East have uh, carried with them for some time? So it's one thing to move westward, but are you still going to have the same notions of uh, thought, the same beliefs, in ensuring that our nation's well-being will still be in good hands. That's a question that really concerns Washington the most. It's one thing to go westward, but if people aren't, aren't unified in going westward and want to form their own separate nation, then that all, that right there poses a threat for national security. I think it's fair to say that even George Washington himself could have been his own national security advisor. Well, in the years after the British surrender at Yorktown, Virginia, in October of 1781, it would be between the time of 1784-1785 that Washington would readdress his concerns for inland waterway navigational system routes linking east and west. Well, George Washington, he already knows the state of um, transportation conditions, most notably in Virginia, and he probably knows they exist in a handful of the other um, colonies. How can it be best described about the current state of transportation system just before and after the American Revolution ends when the British surrender at Yorktown in October 1781? Well... There are dirt roads, along with ancient Indian pathways. They may have been good at one time, but as the 18th century is getting closer to an end, say, you know, here we are between 1784 and 1785, we're looking at least 15 years at best. Is it fair to say for Washington that, you know, as the 19th century is dawning before us, We've got, to find, we've got to do something to reinvent ourselves as a young nation. But it's not going to be something that'll just happen overnight. Washington knows that dirt roads along with ancient Indian pathways have to be replaced with something more advanced to secure the United States' economic and political securities, um, not only for just the present state, but for the long ter- for long-term future purposes. Bonus question right here. Would Washington become infatuated for the rest of his life over the grand vision behind linking the West, meaning the mountains, to the east of the Atlantic Ocean? Well, I would hope the answer is yes, because uh, Washington's not expressing these concerns out of uh, personal satisfaction. He's expressing concerns that are impacting the nation as a whole. I mean, he's looking after us. We may not Maybe it's hard for us to see on one hand how he's doing it, but the bottom line is he's doing it in a way that makes us um, not be on pins and needles living in fear, but thinking forward, thinking about not only what's good in the present, but what's not only what will be good for tomorrow, but what's going to be good 10 to 20 years from now. So, yes, as I said earlier, Washington would become infatuated for the rest of his life over the grand vision behind linking the West, being the mountains to the east, the Atlantic Ocean, in large part because he knew just how vulnerable America was. Should her people not come together as one in supporting a revolutionary transportation system which would prevent separate nations, and I'm talking separate nations, that is, from within America, from waging war against 13 states occupying the eastern seaboard. But on the other hand, though, I I take it back. When I say separate nations, for starters, I could be talking about Indian nations west of um, the Appalachian Mountains. Uh, Think about most notably like the Shawnees that occupy Ohio, uh, the Mingos, whose... Territory extends into southern, present day southern West Virginia. Uh, We could be looking at Indian tribes further to, um, into the north in Michigan, like the Pontiac. So, the bottom line is, folks, that what we now know is the Northwest Territory, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, and Wisconsin, there's a lot of national security right there at stake. Uh, A separate nation right there waging war on, um, the um, on the 13 colonies but to make matters worse what about those who are leaving east and going west who are Americans there's always the fear that they could side with the Indians or let alone not side with the Indians but decide to set up their own um, nation and wage war on Virginia or the Carolinas and then to top it off You know, the Spanish are still in control of Florida. They're still in control of the Gulf Coast. So there's always that fear that, okay, if we don't get a better transportation system, that the Spanish, or let alone the British and the French, any one of those three countries could wage a war on us. So we're dealing, at that time, we're still dealing with three superpowers in the world, the French, the British, and the Spanish yes the french may have been our allies during the revolutionary war but just because you're an ally to another nation during a war a period of war it may not necessarily mean that you'll be a permanent ally forever so we have a lot of uh, tough questions and tough challenges obviously facing this um facing the young nation especially in the aftermath of the British not only surrendering Yorktown, but when the Treaty of Paris in 1783 end, officially ends the American Revolutionary War. Now, in Washington's day, I'll, get, I'll tell you all this right now, in Washington's day, all the rivers in Virginia flowed eastward from the mountains down to the tidewater. So, in other words, river, um, the way rivers flow in Virginia only go one way. From the west, and then going in an eastward direction uh, to Tidewater. And this was during Washington's time. I should point out. Now, George Washington is—he um, wants to do something here that's very uh, radical and different. He wants to um, be the first in Virginia to establish a network or a canal that will link the Atlantic states to the west. What river in Virginia would he choose as his primary vision for making his dream an actual reality? I'll give you some choices. Would it have been the James River, the Potomac, or let alone um, the York River? I think the answer is easy, the Potomac, in large part because, think about it, a lot of washington's land holdings in terms of land in virginia is along the potomac valley so the organization that will sponsor this um, venture or let alone investment is otherwise known as the potomac company and it's interesting, when we think of Potomac River and how it's pronounced, that's P-O-T-O-M-A-C, but the Potomac Company is spelled P-A-T-O-W-M-A-C-K. And who else than uh, George Washington himself to be leading, the or in other words, to be in charge of the company? I mean, after all, the guy has spent uh, countless um, years surveying, so it would make sense to have an actual surveyor be in charge of the company, and yes, Washington took charge behind constructing the Potomac Canal, and we must remember at this time, between 1784 and 1785, we don't have a federal government. We're still being operated under the Articles of Confederation, which is a very, very fledgling form of government where the states are in control, and all 13 states have their own form of currency. They have their own policies, and those policies even include foreign matters. The federal government can't, whatever is known as a federal government at this time, what we we call Congress, they can't do anything without the permission of the states. So this really puts anything that's considered national up a creek. Well, there is good news here given though there's no Department of Treasury, let alone no federal government, the project will have to be relied upon what, is, what are called shares. What are shares? Like, you know, when we think of shares, I often think of a stock market. But shares are um, basically, it's like a form of payment. Investors can pay in installments. Okay, if I've invested, say, in 30 shares, of a, of a capital project, I don't have to pay all the shares back at once. I can do, say, if I'm wealthy enough, I could do three installments of paying 10 shares on each um, payment agreement. So, by paying in installments, it allows the, these investors to um, not have to fork over all their money at one time. In the end, uh, Washington himself would turn to Virginia and Maryland, their legislatures, for financial assistance. And while there was uh, success with that, it wasn't enough, in the end, to make the Potomac uh, Canal an actual success story. In large part because the Potomac River proved to be a good example of where nature won easily over man. You know, for a long time, man has always tried to outsmart nature. He's, no matter what kind of accomplishments he's made, sometimes the consequences will evolve over time, and that can be in the form of nature. The best example I can give, and not to get ahead of the game given where we are in, In this um, particular history series podcast I think of the Titanic and the reason why I say the Titanic was because when she was built or let alone when she was being built the White Star Line had this grand envision that they could build a ship that would um, just be so state-of-the-art to where it had all the features of hospitable luxury but knowing that her passengers not only would feel good on the ship, but knowing that the ship could be labeled unsinkable. Well, we all know what happened. We all know what happened in April of 1912. The Titanic uh, was going at about 24 knots at best, full speed. She received multiple ice warnings from other ships, saying, hey, you know, you need to... uh, be careful for what's around you well by the time the lookout crew in the crow's nest saw the iceberg it was a little too late to slow down we have to remember the titanic is not a honda crv when you're going at 24 knots it slowing down isn't something that just happens in a short time by the time the iceberg is spotted, and they steer um, hard a starboard uh, to the left, the ship's hull is pierced, and then, all, and then the flooding happens, and then the rest is history. So, the reason I share all this is because um, man was dealt a very harsh reminder as a result of the Titanic sinking. How so? He was reminded that he alone is not the most dominant force in the world. And no matter how sophisticated um, technology has evolved over time, or even let alone in 1912 when the Titanic sank, as James Cameron, who directed that blockbuster movie in 1997, he said the following. He said something like this. No matter how sophisticated our technology has become, nature will always prevail. So... Man can have all the safety features he wants on his ships. Man can do everything there is in his power to ensure that the passengers are safe. But in the end, Mother Nature will always prevail. So, in the case with Washington and his Potomac, in his dreams for um, constructing uh, a canal along the Potomac River, Mother Nature prevailed. How so? Well, for one, the river goes as far as far west as the Blue Ridge Mountains all the way to the Atlantic Ocean. And it's not just so much where it goes as far west and where it ends, but there were shallow waters to fast-moving rapids. Is it fair to say that shallow waters would pose a risk for boats going up and down the Potomac River? Absolutely. And at Great Falls, the elevation drops over 600 feet and 200 miles from Cumberland, Maryland, to sea level. So a huge elevation drop over 600 feet and 200 miles, which may not seem like that bad, but I think a drop over 600 feet, that's a big deal. Now that's, that poses risks to boats, not only to just boats, but people's lives. And then summer droughts. You know, you have a bad drought where you don't get a whole lot of rain. It dries up the river, so how is the how? There's no way for the boats to be able to move. So that's an example right there of where the Potomac River, being Mother Nature, would would prevail. And about 11, in eleven years after George Washington died in 1799, the Potomac Company itself collapsed in 1810, and fell into bankruptcy all of its assets and liabilities transferred over to another canal company known as the Chesapeake in Ohio, which would be a canal company that would do, would operate more for recreational purposes over time. You know, now we're going to get to back to the Erie Canal, but one of the reasons why it was important to recognize George Washington is because Washington really was the first American, on American soil, who understood the importance of what our future held. And the only way that future could prevail in terms of broader and sophisticated transportational uh, networks was to have a canal put into place. Now, in the years after Washington passes, It is safe to say that there will be um, other leaders behind the Erie Canal. I mean, the Erie Canal itself, the proposal and the dreams behind constructing the Erie Canal would have many leaders. So, in the years, how do I say this? Um, Who would become the next key European visionary? That is, not someone from America, but a European who actually comes to America? Who would be the next key European visionary behind canal realization? His the answer uh, is Christopher Colles, and the, starting after seventeen seventy. So Christopher Colles is an Irish mechanic and a mathematician. And this fellow has a very, very impressive resume. In some ways, he almost reminds me of Cadwallet or Colden. But Christopher Colles also served as an artillery officer to the Continental Army during the American Revolutionary War under General Henry Knox. Well, what do we know about this fellow, given that I just said a moment ago that he was not only just a mathematician but a mechanic? So it's fair to say he's obviously got engineering credentials, but prior to his arrival into America, being around the time of 1771, he was in charge of working on a na- on navigational improvements involving the River Shannon, which runs over 200 miles from Northern Ireland down to the southwest coast of that country. And in 1772, and he's already in the... Um, well, we still refer, have to refer to it as colonial America. It's not the United States just yet. But he's in America around, by this time. He's settled in. And in 1772, he delivers a series of lectures on the control of gases in Philadelphia. By 1773, he's in New York City discussing the mechanics of canal navigation. Okay. So he he's on to something here, folks. But in 1776, okay, 1776 is already a big year as it is given that um, the Continental Congress in Philadelphia is going to be doing something very revolutionary, you know, not only just signing the Declaration of Independence, but also declaring separation from England, but as for Christopher Colles in 1776, he has designed a system of pipes from ho- out of hollow logs that will transport water for New York City's water system from a major reservoir of the time. Now, that's what I call revolutionary ingenuity onto itself. Nobody else had done that in America before until this fellow in 1776. Now, Christopher Colley's in 1785 Four years four years after uh, the British surrender at Yorktown and uh, two years after the uh, Treaty of Paris was signed, officially ending the American Revolutionary War, in 1785, Christopher Colles will, goes before the New York st- State Legislature to propose a plan for improving the waterways of the Mohawk Valley, which includes a series of canals and locks being built along the Mohawk River to where the Hudson, River and Lake Ontario would get connected, allowing for completion of navigation from the Atlantic Ocean to the interior, to the inland interior. You know, this was all a great um, master plan. Unfortunately for Christopher Colles, he couldn't garner enough support, not only just from the outside, but from within the New York State Legislature. So this grand project uh, plan was abandoned. You know, um, how do I say it? I mean, you know, yes, it would be easy to point fingers at at the state legislature alone, but I don't know if that's even fair enough. We have to remember, you know, we just fought a war not long ago. And while, yes, securing our future is very important, in order to secure your future, though, wouldn't you need to have a government put into play? And not just a government, we're talking about a national government. Now, just because you have a national government in play, it may not mean that, that even the national government might go along with, um, with a project like the Erie Canal, but you do need to have some form of national government that actually recognizes the importance of uh, major projects like this one. Now, after um, Christopher Colles comes along, another fellow by the name of Elkanah Watson, whom was no stranger to um, the mercantile industry, uh, comes along in the post-Revolutionary War era, and he goes before the New York State Legislature proposing a natural waterway system connecting the Hudson River and New York City with the Great Lakes. But like Christopher Colley's, Elkanah Watson's vision falls short. So we've seen a lot of trials and tribulations. Um, but, he, but just to let you all know, we have now finished uh, talk part one about the visionaries, and we've learned a great deal about who many of these visionaries are. Some of them will reappear as we go on to the second part of um, Wedding of the Waters. And part two will be tit- is going to be titled The Action Begins. Now, I'm sure many of you are wa- thinking okay, what does the title The Action Begins necessarily all about? Is it the actual construction of the canal? Could it be um, debates on how to go about raising money? in Congress, or let alone from within the state of New York? Those are the questions we're going to get to when we get into part two, the next time I'm on the air with you all. Well, thank you for letting me um, share with you all this uh, episode. And just remember this, George Washington may have been the father of our country from from an American Revolutionary War perspective, but just remember, too, that we must thank him for laying out the blueprint of our country, not just for how it would evolve after defeating England, being the mightiest empire in the world on the battlefield, but how we were to move forward as a country after um, securing our independence. It's one thing to defeat an empire on the battlefield, but how, how a young nation secures its independence is something else. So, for Washington to lay out a plan linking the East to the West, that took a lot of sacrifice and courage, but this plan didn't happen overnight. You take a, you take all of his experience as a surveyor, and all those experiences as a surveyor made him appreciate what was around him, but it also made him appreciate all the more just how vulnerable our nation could be if we couldn't uh, come together and do what was right, not only for the present, but in terms of securing the fe- the future. It's just a shame that Washington himself could not have been a lo- could not have been around to have seen the Erie Canal be constructed, because I think he would have um, he would have been um, happy. He would have been um, he would have been ecstatic. He would have just been ecstatic to have uh, seen boats coming up and down. How do I say it? ships um, moving downward and going uphill in, in ways that he envisioned and not just ships going upward and downward but being able to transport goods not only from the west to the east most notably the agricultural products but seeing uh, manufactured goods along with immigrants settling east to west as i said from the introduction um that one of the um, most unique um, advantages that the erie canal would provide was a haven for immigrants going westward into what we now know is that northwest territory of ohio indiana michigan illinois and wisconsin you know it's one thing to have open territory but you've got to have people who can populate it and how are they going to get there they can waterway the erie canal so Thank you again for letting me uh, be on the air, and I look forward to um, being on again here soon. Take care and have a great weekend.